why do you think folk love money? Folk love money because of, of the things that they think that money can do for them. They love money because of selfishness. First sin in the Bible, uh, listed in Genesis chapter 3, says that uh, when Eve saw that uh, the, the fruit of the forbidden tree uh, was good for food, pleasing to the eye and profitable for gaining wisdom, she took, in spite of the fact that she had been instructed not to take, she took and she ate and she gave to her husband and he ate. All of that is rooted in the fact that uh, Eve thought that the fruit would do something for her, would do something uh, that would be beneficial for her, something that God was trying to keep from her. That, that, that was the temptation that the serpent made, that, that, that God is lying to you uh, and trying to keep this from you because he knows that if you take of it, then you will be like him. So the, 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 the first thing that we can lift up as a characteristic of Christian service is that we are unselfish. The second one goes right along with the first, and that is we have to have a spirit of humility. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. In other words, Paul says that, that if we are to uh, take on the attitude of Christ, then we have to humble ourselves in the same way that Jesus humbled himself. Now, uh, uh, this, this, this passage is really pulled out of its context. Uh, Paul was actually talking to the Philippian church about uh, maintaining an attitude of humility toward one another within the church because of a fracture that had developed within the church. But even pulled out of its context, doing what, what we commonly tell you not to do, isogeting the passage, uh, what it says to us in a very uh, powerful way is that uh, the mindset of Christ was one of humility. And if we are to model Christ, then we must be humble as well. Let me say this in passing about that. I've got three more that I want to share with you. But let me quickly say this in, in passing if we're talking about Christian service. There is a difference between humility and weakness. One of the things that, 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 that cause uh, folk to push back from humility is, is that they, they tend to think of humility as being weak. Uh, uh, the, the Bible talks about uh, being meek. Jesus describes himself as meek. And, and, and meekness uh, is, is uh, what humility is really all about. And most Christian folk don't want to have nothing to do with meekness. Don't want to have anything to do with humility because we think of it as weakness. But there is a difference between being humble and being weak. Humility involves unpretentiousness. It involves a spiritual modesty. It involves having a lowly spirit. Uh, whereas weakness implies that you are defective in some way, that you are lacking. And, and, and when we have the proper understanding of the difference between humility and weakness, then we can certainly agree that Jesus was humble, but Jesus was not in any way weak. He is not calling for a church to be weak. In fact, it takes strength of character in order to be a Christian. It takes strength of, of, of character in order to affirm the tenets of Christ as opposed to the ways of the world. When we are approached in, in some of the ugly ways that we are, when we are mistreated in some of the ways that we are mistreated, our natural human response is, is to give back what we have received. And yet, uh, it, it, it is the humble person that learns how to uh, be strong enough not to respond in the way that others have responded 
to us. Have you ever been approached by someone who was ugly towards you? And, 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 and all you're doing is building up in your mind and in your heart how you're going to be uh, equally ugly toward them. And then there's a different spirit that overtakes you and says, that's not what Jesus would have you to do. That's what humility is. And if we are to be servants of Christ, then we must learn how to practice humility. Third, we must be prepared to suffer Persecution. You see how these things all line up with one another? There's unselfishness, there's humility, and then we have to be prepared to suffer persecution. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, you are blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you deeper into God's kingdom. Hear what Jesus says. He says that when you stand for him, your standing for him is going to provoke persecution. That's not a byproduct of being a Christian. That's a direct reaction to being a Christian. And, and, and it gives us a better, more realistic understanding of what it means to stand with Jesus. We, we, we have this, this misunderstanding, this, this, this misnomer that, that if we stand with Jesus, that everybody's going to love us. Everybody's going to treat us. Everybody's going to always have something nice to say about us. That's not the way it is in real life. When you stand for Jesus, when you love those that others have deemed unlovable, when you practice the spirit of forgiveness and, and of mercy and of service, which is what we're talking about here today, you can expect persecution to result from your behavior. But the persecution is designed, Jesus says, to drive us deeper into God's kingdom. Not to drive us away, not to make us say, I quit, but to make us say, the more you do, the more I'm going to get closer to God. There's a hymn that we sing, talk about me just as much as you please. The more you talk, I'm going to stay on my knees. That's what service does for us. It, it helps us to be prepared to suffer persecution. Number four, we have to be prepared to be misunderstood. Loving folk who don't love you will cause people to misunderstand. Being kind to folk who are not always kind to us will cause us to be misunderstood. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, be content Pleased even when you, my students, my harvest hands, get the same treatment I get. If they call me the master dung face, and you know what dung is, right? I don't have to explain to you what dung is. If they call me dung face, then what can the workers expect? Taking a stand for Jesus, I'll say, for the second time in this hour, uh, is, is, is a difficult and, and, and tough thing to do. It takes courage to be a Christian. And, and, and when we stand with Christ, when we stand for Christ, when we serve in his name, often we will be misunderstood. The fifth thing we want to say, and then we'll move into uh, the passage in Mark chapter 10, is that Christian servants have to be obedient to Christ and have to be wise in that obedience. When I say obedient, I mean that you are going to be called upon in your service to do things that go contrary to your human will, to do things that are contrary to the thinking of the world, to do things that are certainly contrary to the prevalent thinking of those around us, even those around us who are Christians. I, I hear Christian folk all the time telling folk, I wouldn't do that. No, nah, baby, that, that, that ain't me. I'm, they, they, they picked the right one because if they had done that to me, we would have had a whole different understanding. But if we are servants of Christ, then we have to be obedient to Christ. When he says, bless those who curse you, that's not an option. We have to be obedient to that. When he says, do good to them that hate you, that's not 
an option. When he says pray for them that use you and persecute you, that none of those things are optional. It is a requirement that we do these things. And, and, and we're able to do them as we adapt the model of Christ and make Christ First in our living. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. These words I speak to you are not incidental additions to your life, homeowner improvements to your standard of living. No, they are foundational words, words to build a life on. If you work these words into your life, you are like a smart carpenter who built his house on the solid rock. Listen, rain poured down, the river flooded, a tornado hit, but nothing moved that house because it was fixed on a rock. That's what Jesus says will happen when we learn how to have a spirit of obedience. So if we are to, to have characteristics of Christian servanthood, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but, but they're just five things that we want to lift up. We have to be unselfish. We have to be humble. We have to be prepared to suffer. We have to be prepared to be misunderstood. And we have to be obedient and wise in that obedience. Service is the theme of the passage that we are lifting up today. Jesus and his disciples are uh, heading toward Jerusalem, heading towards uh, that, that fateful uh, encounter with death, with his passion, with his suffering. And while he is on his way toward Jerusalem, two of his disciples, James and John, brothers, the sons of a man named Zebedee, come to him and they ask Jesus a question. And, and, and the question sets forth this whole notion of Christian service. Look at Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 35. James and John, Zebedee's sons, came up to him. Teacher, we have something we want you to do for us. What is it? I'll see what I can do. Arrange it, they said, so that we will be awarded the highest places of honor in your glory. One of us at your right and the other at your left. That's their request. That's that that's their uh, 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 desire from Jesus, that one sit on the right hand and the other sit on the left hand. Now, let, 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 let's frame this properly. Uh, Matthew says that it was not James and John that came to Jesus to make this request, but that it was his mo their mother, uh, a, a woman by the name of Salome, also known as Mary, that she was the one who made the request. But even if that were so, it was probably at the insistence of the two men. Mark doesn't include the mother. Mark says that it was done by the two disciples. And, and, and I'm of a mind to believe that it was done by the two disciples. These young men were brothers and, and, and one of them, John, grows so close to Jesus that uh, he, he describes himself in John's gospel account as the one that Jesus loved. And yet here, the brothers come together to conspire against the other 10 disciples looking for places of honor within the kingdom of Christ. Now, the fact that they're coming talking about sitting in seats lets you know that they still have a very human understanding of Jesus's heavenly kingdom. Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of heaven is this. In other passages, it says the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, all the same thing. He was talking about citizenship in the divine kingdom where he is at 
the head. They had a misunderstanding of their kingdom. They were still thinking on human earthly terms as to what this kingdom represents. And some people try to suggest that uh, it's wrong to criticize these two men for what they were doing, that, 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 that there was nothing wrong with the request that they were making. But clearly there is something wrong with the request that they were making, because if it wasn't wrong, they wouldn't have done it by themselves. They wouldn't have done it apart from everybody else. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And just as an aside, when you got to look around to see who's watching you when you're getting ready to do something, it's a pretty good indication that you ain't got no business doing it. If, 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 if you are spending your time making sure, I need a private minute in order to do this, it's a pretty good indication that maybe you shouldn't be doing it at all. James and, and, and John get Jesus off to the side and they make this request. I want you to understand that the request is of three specific things. First, they ask for preeminence. They want to sit on thrones. And they want to have the honor and the exaltation that a throne represents. So they, 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 they want to be above the other disciples. Second, proximity. They decided that there was no good reason why they could not belong to the inside circle, the inside circle of power. Now understand, Peter, James, and John were already within the inner circle of the disciples. There are things that Jesus does where he only carries three people with him. When, 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 when Jairus' daughter is sick and near death, and in fact, the word comes back to them as, as Jesus is making his way there, that the daughter has died. And Jesus says, pay no attention to them, just trust in me. When Jesus goes into the house... He doesn't carry all 12 disciples with him. He carries with him Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes up on the mountain of transfiguration, he doesn't carry all 12 disciples with him. He carries Peter, James, and John. When Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane and uh, he sets himself apart, he leaves nine disciples in one place, carries three more, Peter, James, and John with him father before he finally separates himself even from them. Peter, James, and John are already the de facto inner circle of the disciples, but here James and John say, we don't need Peter. We can do this by ourselves. Just you and me, brother, that's all we need. Our desire is to be closer to you. And, and, and somebody will argue that it's not wrong to want to be near Jesus. And we would respond, you're right. It's not wrong to want to be near Jesus. The question is, why do you want to be near Jesus? What is it that you are looking for? And clearly, as you read the rest of the passage, it, it, it stands out that they don't want to get closer to Jesus because they want to do more work. They want to be closer to Jesus because they, they, they believe that in being closer to him, it will heap greater accolades upon themselves. So motivation is key here. And never forget, Jesus makes it plain throughout the gospel accounts that motivation is as important as behavior. Jesus says it's not enough to not murder. You have to be motivated to not call your brother a fool. It's not enough to not commit adultery, to not engage in adulterous behavior. You have to be motivated to not look with lust upon another person. Motivation is important in understanding what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And so it's not that James and John want to be close to Jesus. It's why they want to be close to Jesus that causes the problem. So there's preeminence. There's proximity. The third thing they want is power. 
can't leave that out because that's the clear motivation there. That's what thrones represent. Thrones represent power. In spiritual terms, power is the means by which God's good ends are accomplished. And so constantly we pray for God's power to rest on us so that we can do the work that he has assigned to our hands. But that ain't what James and John are looking for. In human terms, power represents the establishment of our superiority over others. And that seems to be the motivating factor for these two men. In this time, in in this particular time, we have to be very cognizant of the fact that people today are motivated by thoughts and fantasies of preeminence, of proximity, and of power, but not of service. And in this sense, what we see from James and John is a model for the attitude of the world. Well, how does does Jesus respond to their request? Look at verse 38. Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized in the baptism I'm about to be plunged into? And listen to how they respond. Sure, they said, why not? Which tells me that they hadn't even thought about what he was saying. Jesus said, come to think of it, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized in my baptism. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. There are other arrangements for that. James and John had not yet understood the message of Jesus's teaching. They did not understand the nature of Christ's kingdom or the responsibilities of the seats on Christ's throne. They had not yet truly heard Jesus. And I fear that this is often the case in the world today. And when I say in the world, I mean in the Christian world. We come to church, but we come to church with our minds already made up about who Jesus is and how Jesus is going to respond. And, and nothing that happens within the, the, the church worship experience or the church study experience changes our minds because our minds are already made up. I'm reminded of, 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 of the story when I was in seminary. One of my favorite professors, uh, systematic theology professor, Dr. Fisher Humphreys, first day of uh, systematic theology class. He came into the class, stood before the students, about 25 of us in, in the classroom, and, and, and he started off uh, giving his lecture saying, sometimes I question the love of God. And when he said that, most of the people in the classroom became indignant. You could see it on their faces. Their eyes got big and, and they immediately wanted to respond. What, what do you mean that you question the love of God? And he started talking about all the things that were going on in the world at that time. If it were today, he'd be talking about this pandemic that has gripped the world and gripped the nation. He would also talk about the social injustices that take place in our communities on a regular basis. He would talk about the abundance of uh, sickness and injury that go on in the world all the time. He would talk about the inequity of rich versus poor, of strong versus weak. And the longer he talked, the more indignant the students became. And it became very clear to me sitting there that he was setting them up for something, but they were unwilling to hear what he was really saying. They had already made up their minds. And in in fact, one of the students at at some point uh, dared to call Dr. Humphreys a heretic. 
because he would say that, that, that he questioned the love of God. And, and, and this is what Dr. Humphreys did. A after about 15 minutes of allowing this to go on and, and, and seeing the, 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 the response of, of, of the students, he picked up his bag, gathered his stuff, and he said, well, since you all already know everything, you obviously don't need me in here as your professor. He gathered his stuff, walked out the door, went back to his office. Class was over. And many of those students went to the registrar and they dropped the class that day. We don't want to be in class with him. He, he, he doesn't know God. He, he's a heretic. He's, he, he's not a believer. He's teaching false doctrine. So when I came back to class the next day, there were less than half of, of, of the 25 or so that were in there the first day, only about 12 or 13 that went there. And when Dr. Humphreys walked in, he looked around and he, he put a little sheepish grin on his face and he said, well, now let's get started. And his point was those who left weren't interested in hearing anything that he had to say anyway. And those who remained, he had the hope that they were attentive enough and open enough in order to receive the instruction that he was about to give. And then he picked right up where he left off, where he talked about the fact that often when he looks at the world, when he looks at all of the things that go on in the world, he questions the love of God. But then he added a very important but. But because of Jesus and because of the price that he paid on our behalf because of his substitutionary atonement, because he died in our place, because he was buried in the heart of the earth, because he rose with resurrection power to secure our salvation. I am secure in the knowledge that God loves me in spite of what I see. Now, I just had an inkling. I'd never taken his class, never saw him before, but I had an inkling that that's where he was going. But first he wanted to clear the room of those who weren't really listening. Too often, we approach God with, a, with an absolutist understanding of what it is that God is saying. And we are so certain of how God is going to act, of what God is going to say, of how God is going to move, that we are often close to the idea that God can move in ways other than the way we think he can move. I'm listening to, 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 to some of my uh, uh, preacher friends, colleagues, I can't call them friends, colleagues who, who, who are trying to, to tell everybody what God is doing through this pandemic. Truth of the matter is, I don't know what he's doing and neither do they. They don't have a clue as to what he's doing. But I can say this, as this pandemic moves throughout the world, for those who are rooted in Christ, it is teaching us to get closer to him. It is teaching us to draw nearer to him, to be more attentive to him, to have our eyes more open, to be more aware of him and of his movement in our world. I don't know if it's divine judgment upon humanity because of sin. I do know this. It's causing me to, 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 to listen with new understanding, with new ears. And that's what Jesus wanted from James. And I, I, I haven't left the passage that I was talking about. I, I, I know exactly what I'm going James and John weren't listening. Again, listen to what he says. Jesus said, you have no idea what you're asking. Are you capable of drinking the cup I drink, of being baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with or I'm about to plunge into? Listen to their answer. I love the way Peterson puts this. Sure. Why not? That's an answer of somebody who ain't paying no attention. That's an answer of someone who has not given full consideration of what it means. Can you run a mile? Sure I can. Have you ever run one? No. Then how do you know you can run it? Can you run a mile in six minutes? Sure I can. Why not? Have you ever done it? No. Our problem is that we fail to consider fully 
we fail to, to, to comprehend all that is being said to us by Jesus. Jesus talks about drinking from a cup. He talks about being plunged into a baptism. And he asks, are you equipped for that? And by their answer, not what they said, but how they said it, they made it abundantly clear. No, we ain't close to being ready. But listen to how Jesus responds. So he said, he knows they're not ready. He knows that what they're they're saying, they don't really understand. They don't really mean. But he says, you you, you happened up on the right answer, even though you didn't know that it was the right answer that you were giving. He says, in point of fact, you will drink from the same cup that I drink from. And you will be plunged into the same baptism that I will be plunged into. But. To sit in these seats that you have requested, it's not something for me to give. You have asked for places of preeminence. You have asked for places of proximity. You have asked for places of power. But these places are not for me to give. Now, somebody is is watching me right now, and they're asking the question, what do you mean it ain't for him to give? He's Jesus. He's God. What if Jesus can't give it, then who can? But Jesus is is establishing something in his response to these men that's important for us to model in our desire to be good servants of Christ. Jesus is modeling an attitude of submission. Jesus says, the, I, I, I love Peterson, but, 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 but in the, the, the King James Version, which most of you all are familiar with, he says it this way, to sit at my right and sit at my left is not mine to give, but it's for those whom my father has prepared. In one of these rare instances, it doesn't happen quite a lot, the King James Version is more clear then the message version is, it's not mine to give, Jesus says. It's not mine to give because that's not the space that I occupy. Yes, I am God. The same Jesus will say, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. In response to the question that is asked on the night before his suffering, show us the Father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he, he's not denying his relationship with God. He's not denying that, in fact, he is God. What he's saying is, within the Godhead, each of us has a responsibility. And my role within the Godhead does not include these seats. Now, this is not the only place where, where Jesus does this. He, he, he does this after his resurrection. When the disciples ask him, still thinking on a human level, the the disciples ask him, will you now restore the kingdom uh, to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons that are set by my father's hand. In other words, that's not my business. That's not what I do. Jesus regimented himself. Jesus submitted himself, even within the Godhead, to the authority of the Father. He never calls God anything else but Father, save one time, and that's on the cross where he cries, quoting uh, David in in the Psalms. He, he, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Other than that, he always calls God Father. Well, if God is the Father, that makes me the Son, right? And the father is in the place of superiority over the son. In constantly referring to God as the father and referring to him as the son or the son of man, Jesus was showing that he had regimented his life. He had disciplined his life into the will of the father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he stretches out on the ground and he cries out, Father, if it be possible, 
Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus regimented himself to the will of the father. He knew that in order to be a good servant, he had to discipline himself to the one who was in leadership. Oh, Christian brother, Christian sister watching me right now via live stream. You can't run stuff and be a servant. You can't do it your way and be a servant. If you are a servant of Christ, then you have to do it his way. You can't love your way and call yourself a servant. You can't forgive your way, which is really no forgiveness at all, and call yourself a servant. You can't pick and choose who you serve. We're all God's children. And it is incumbent upon us to find ways to serve everyone who is in need. We must learn how to regiment ourselves as Jesus regimented himself. He, he said, yeah, come to think of it, you will drink from my cup and you will suffer the same baptism that I'm going to suffer. And that was his way of saying, you will endure the same horrific suffering down the road for the sake of the gospel that I'm about to endure. But he says, beyond that, Sitting in these seats, that's not really for me to give. That, 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 that belongs to the Father. One other thing about that, and then we're going to wrap this thing up. Christian servants shouldn't be concerned with such things as places of honor. But they should be concerned on improving the caliber of the service that we render in Jesus' name. Now that's the key, understanding that whatever we do, however we do it, it's not being done in our name. It's being done in the name of Jesus. I know that, that we say this regularly for those uh, who regularly are, are with me in Bible study, so you might get tired of hearing me say it, but it's important for us to remember, we don't represent ourselves. We represent Jesus. We don't represent Shiloh. We represent Jesus. Shiloh represents Jesus. We don't represent Shiloh. And so it's important that in the work that we do in the caliber of the service that we render that we see it not as one person serving another person but that we see it as our serving God turning your Bibles those of you who have your Bibles with you turning your Bible. I'm not going to turn because I know what it says but turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25 and around verse 31, Jesus, in talking about the kingdom of heaven and giving a description uh, of the kingdom of heaven, he, he talks about uh, a, a separation that takes place where the master separates his servants, puts some on the right and some on the left. Some passages say that, that they're sheep and they're goats, separated them that way. But to the ones that he put on the right, he says, come in and inherit the kingdom that my father has prepared. And, and, and then he says this, for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was sick and in prison, you visited me. When I was naked and out of doors, you clothed me and provided me shelter. And their response was one of of, 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 of wonder, of mystery. Lord, when did we see you that way? When were you hungry? When were you thirsty? When were you naked? When were you sick? When were you out of doors? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least, you've done it to me. Similarly, he says to the others, away from me. Because when I was hungry, when I was thirsty, when I was sick, and when I was homeless, you did nothing for me. 
And their response was also one of mystery. When did we see you that way? And, and he says, when you didn't do it to the least, you didn't do it to me. Now, now folk try to model that into a picture of, of, of entrance into heaven. And if you do that, you're missing the point of what's being said. And you got it totally wrong because nobody gets into heaven based upon merit. That's not what he's talking about. He says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is for those who are willing to serve. This is not about a litmus test for entrance into heaven. This is about a litmus test for service. And the litmus test for service is, do you see everyone like Jesus? Or do you have picks and chooses as to who you will serve? Do you have picks and chooses as to who you will treat well versus who you will treat in an inferior fashion? That's what's really being talked about. This isn't about who gets into heaven. You don't get into heaven by virtue of the works that you do. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes. Belief is, is, is the litmus test, not service, but service is the byproduct of our belief. And so Jesus says, to sit on my right and on my left is not for me to give. It's for those whom the Father has prepared. And therefore, you ought to take your minds off of the seat that you sit in. And you ought to fix your mind on the caliber of the service that you render. I got 10 minutes left. When the other 10, see, that, that conversation is over now. But, but, but Mark continues and says, when the other 10 heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said, and when people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. As they continue their journey, somewhere along the way, James and John must have told the others about the conversation that they had with Jesus. I don't know. I might not have shared this, you know, we, we got Jesus off to ourselves and, and we asked him something away from the rest of y'all because we wanted something that y'all couldn't have. Maybe I would have kept that part of the conversation to myself. But somehow or other, the conversation was leaked out and the other 10 heard about what happened and they got mad. And they started arguing. They started fighting and fussing amongst one another. And I would imagine, scripture doesn't say, but I have a right to speculate I would imagine that part of the conversation is what makes you think that you deserve the seat? I'm closer to him than you are. I did this. I, I can show here Peter doing that. You know, Peter's the first one to speak up about everything. But however the conversation went, they got angry with one another. Not angry with a spirit of correction toward James and John because they had no business asking for those seats, angry because James and John got to Jesus about the seats before they could get to them. Oh, brothers and sisters, often the explanation for our anger is not righteous indignation, but it's upset that somebody got to where we desired to be before we could get there. That seems to be the case with these disciples. That's why they're bickering back and forth. Jesus had already had a similar discussion with his disciples in Mark chapter 9. And, and, and so this is not the first time that this has come up. And what that tells me is that this place of, 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 of position 
this, 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 this attitude about uh, preeminence and about proximity and about power, it was at the forefront of the minds of these disciples because their minds were still being inundated with worldly thinking. The church is always less than what it could be and should be when it is inundated with worldly thinking. This is not a world system. And the church should not operate like a world system. I'm always concerned when folk come talking about the way we do things in the church and they say, well, this is the way we do it at the club. Well, this ain't your club. This is God's church. This is the way we do it at the plant. This ain't the plant. This ain't Exxon. This ain't Dow. This is God's church. This is the way we do it in, in, in government. This ain't the mayor's office. This is not the state legislature. This is God's church. And so we should not demean the church. We should not lower the church by trying to make the church conform to world systems. Jesus has given us a different system by which we should operate. Let me tell you something. Business don't talk about love without limit and without restriction. Government doesn't talk about forgiving those who have wronged us more than once, more than twice, more than 10 times, more than 100 times, more than 1,000 times. Those systems don't talk about the things that are the pillars of the citizenship of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So why would you demean God's church by trying to make God's church fit within an inferior system? That's what they were doing. They weren't mad with James and John because James and John were guilty of worldly thinking. They were mad with James and John because James and John got to Jesus before they could get to Jesus. And so Jesus has to set them straight. And he uses worldly kingdoms as a contrast. He says, this is the way they do stuff in the world. But that's not the way we do it in my kingdom. If you're going to come after me, we've already quoted, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. He says here, if you're going to be a citizen of my kingdom, then you have to be willing to serve. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Now, let's be clear. This thinking, this teaching is a paradox to worldly systems, but it is essential in God's kingdom. To be great in God's sight, we must be willing to work and serve everyone. Final thought, three minutes. Verse 45, that's what the Son of Man has done. He's referring to himself. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, the King James Version says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The idea of ransom suggests that you are being held captive, that you have been kidnapped. The idea of giving away life in exchange for those who have been held hostage. Jesus says, that's what I have come to do. If you want to drink from my cup, James and John, since you say that you can't, all the rest of you, since you mad because James and John got to me first. If you want to drink from my cup, then you have to be willing to sacrifice your life. If you want to share in my baptism, then you have to be willing to sacrifice your life. 
because that's what I'm here doing. Now, let's be clear about one thing. Two minutes ago, let's be clear about one thing. If anybody could have said, I ain't doing this, it was Jesus. If there was anybody who was qualified, sinless, perfect, if there was anyone who could say, y'all got to fend for yourselves, it was Jesus. But Jesus says, this was my purpose. This is why I came. This is what the Son of Man has done. This is why I am here. Why is that important? Because we're here to model why he's here. So if Jesus says that he's here to serve and not to be served, then what makes you think that you can get around service? Universal service. Completely selfless service. The Lord has need of workers to till his field today. So kindly, he has led me to walk in wisdom's way. I pray for grace to help me with all my heart to say, oh, blessed Savior, count on me. Can Jesus count on us to serve as he has served? Eternal God, our Father, thank you for this time of sharing. We pray that as your word has gone forth, it would not just have touched heads, but that it would have touched hearts, that a seed would have been planted in our hearing that would reap a bountiful harvest in our living. Bless us and keep us through this period of separation, through this period of social distancing. Keep us tied to one another because we're wrapped up, tied up, tangled up, in you. We ask these things only in the name of your son Jesus and for his sake we pray. Amen. You can also share in our evening Bible study tonight at 6.30 and we will be back on the prayer line at 6.05. Have a good afternoon.